Edward Ginocchio, and this is the 33 Rides podcast, the show that is all about bicycles, adventure, and changing the world. If this is your first taste of the 33 Rides podcast, an extra special welcome to you, and we do hope that you will enjoy the show. Not just today's episode, but our previous episodes as well, where you'll find interviews with Anna Hughes intrepid cyclist and founder of the environmental charity Flight Free UK, and also with Alistair Humphreys, who cycled around the world, coined the term micro-adventure, and has more recently become an outspoken environmental campaigner as well. But in today's episode, we have a very special guest. I'm very excited to be able to introduce to you Eleanor Moseman, who is a woman of extraordinary accomplishments. She's a cyclist, adventurer, photographer, linguist, passionate advocate for human rights with a special interest in Tibetan and Uyghur culture. She's fearless, she's outspoken, and she'll be speaking with us in just a minute. But first, as always, I'd like to record my thanks to my friends and colleagues at Sticky Technology, who have taken on many of my responsibilities while I was away setting up the 33 Rides project. And also to Catherine and the team at Brompton Bicycle for setting us up with a pair of magnificent Brompton folding bikes, without which the 33 Rides project would not have been half as much fun. If you'd like to know more, about the 33 Rides project. Our website is at 33rides.com and you can find us on Twitter where our handle is at 33rides. But now, let's get on with the show. Okay, so the 33 Rides podcast is all about bicycles and adventure and changing the world. And our guest on today's episode is someone who has not only made some quite extraordinary bicycling adventures in some of the world's most challenging environments, but has also, using her writer's voice and her photographer's eye, become something of an advocate for the people through whose lands she has wandered and whose lives she has shared. She's travelled widely in Tibet and Xinjiang, and Kyrgyzstan, I think, and Uzbekistan maybe as well, and Bangladesh and elsewhere. She's lived in China for 12 years, I think. She speaks Tibetan and Mandarin and Uyghur, and her work has been published in Prospect Magazine and the Los Angeles Times and The Guardian, and she's been exhibited in the British Museum in London. I say she's been exhibited. Her work has been exhibited in the British Museum in London. And recently, she's taken part in the Silk Road Mountain Race, billed as the world's most difficult bike race. She's a native of Dayton, Ohio, and her name is Eleanor Moseman. Eleanor, hello and welcome to the 33 Rides podcast. Hey, Ed. (laughs) You make me sound really amazing. (laughs) Well, I'm just telling people the truth. 
Now, Eleanor, I want to get on and talk about your adventures soon, but maybe we can begin at home by setting the scene. So can you tell me where you are today and what, if anything, can you see from your window? Um, I'm currently in Dayton, Ohio. Um, that's my current location. I'm not really, well, I was born here, but never really lived here um, until COVID hit. Um, I see suburbia America outside my window. Okay, now, Eleanor, our paths first crossed many, many years ago, I think, when we both had an interest in... 2009. 2009. Well, yes. I can't work out how many years ago that is. I think it goes down as quite a lot. I think at the time, we both had an interest in cycling in China. So it's what not quite 20 years ago, but quite a few years ago. And I think we've... Not only have we never met in person, but I think, in fact, this is the first time we've actually spoken face-to-face or at least video-to-video but thanks to the the magic of the internet I have been able to follow at least if not always keep up with some of your adventures and your work over the last 14 years or whatever it's been but Eleanor if I were to ask you today uh, what do you do for for a living or what's your job uh, what would you answer? Well that's kind of a multi-layered answer uh usually my elevator speech would be something like i do commercial uh interior and architecture photography to pay the bills but the reason i put my pants on in the morning are photo photojournalism projects um to elevate voices of um, minority groups such as tibetans and uyghurs and i would con- I, I guess i would consider myself more of a human rights activist that uses a camera I've been playing with those titles and labels lately, and I'm kind of coming to the point in my life and career that I would be willing to let go of the camera if it meant that I could be more involved in advocacy for groups of people that need that. There's there's lots to talk about there, isn't there? So before we dive in at the deep end, uh, to get warmed up, shall we have a round of quick fire questions? Okay. Sure. So my first uh, easy warm-up question for you is, which is your favorite country for cycling? Tibet. Oh, should I not say it that way? I mean, Western China. (laughs) I think you're allowed to say Tibet. (laughs) I am, yes, Tibet. All right, Uh, favorite country for eating? Ooh, East Turkestan. I mean... Xinjiang. A <laughs> uh, place you'd like to visit next that you haven't visited before? Oh, Dharamsala, which I'm headed to in a month. Exciting. Uh, Favourite animal? Uh, I'm going to give you the choice between yak, camel or donkey, but you can pick something else coyote. if you want to. Coyote. Coyote. Yeah. Do you see coyotes running in the streets of Dayton, Ohio? Actually, yes. Yeah. <laughs> some in the suburbs and I don't like how the people react to them so I'm I'm an advocate for coyotes I guess when you're away on an adventure what do you miss most oh I was just telling somebody that the three things that I always like desire the most is a hot shower a hot cup of coffee and warm dry wool socks warm dry wool socks can't beat them I know (laughs) clean too clean what place, what place feels most like home for you? Um, 
that would probably be um, Gardza Tibet, or in Chinese, Ganza Western Sichuan. Okay, it sounds like we're going to have to go back to Tibet uh, later in this conversation. Are we going to have to do it? You're the geography guy, too, so. One more quick question. This might not be a quick question, but one more question in this set anyway. One piece of retrospective advice that you'd give to your 10-year-old self if you could send a message back in time. This one's easy. I know this one. To trust yourself. Don't listen to the noise. Trust yourself. Okay. There's loads of stuff I'd like to talk about, which covers your extraordinary career so far. But maybe we can actually get started with something that you've been doing more recently. This amazing bike race, the Silk Road Mountain Race. Can you tell me something more about it? How does it work? What are the rules? Uh, Why is it so difficult? And how did you come to be involved? Uh, Well, it's a self-supported bikepacking race. Um, It's in a very like wilderness area of Kyrgyzstan, not a lot of people, not a lot of shops, you know, you have to figure out supply points. Uh, you can be hit with extreme heat one day and be hit with a blizzard the next day, like going over passes and everything. And the reason and I was actually, I didn't really know anything about racing until 2018 when Brooks England reached out to me because they had sponsored me with saddles in the past about being on their media crew for the Silk Road Mountain Race, which was a bike packing race in Kyrgyzstan. I was like, well, what's a race? I don't know anything about this stuff. Sure. Like I get paid and get to go to Kyrgyzstan and hang out in a buhanka with like some other people. So, um, they also needed me cause I knew Kyrgyzstan and I could handle logistics and finding fixers and translators. So I did a lot of the background work for that. And then when I got there, a whole like new world opened up to me. And I got, I was interviewing racers. Like people were like, Jay Peterberry's here. And I'm like, who's Jay Peterberry? Like, who's this guy? And so they're like, okay, well you, you interview him. I'm like, okay, whatever. And so I started interviewing him and I, he is, and he's so intense and so crazy. And the way he talked about mountains and cycling, I was like, I connect with you. Like, yes, I get all of this. So just like having that brief interview with him just made me feel like, oh, these are kind of my people. Like I belong with these people. And so I spent two weeks photographing the race and getting to know the racers. And the entire two weeks I'm in the Buhanka with uh, some other cyclists that were working on the media team. The entire two weeks, I think I want to do it. No, I don't want to do it. Do you think you do it? So like two weeks, we're all like debating on how we would do it. And this and that. And what I was noticing was that a lot of people were coming out there as like very strong trained cyclists, but they didn't have mountain experience. Like one guy, this was the first race for in Kyrgyzstan for the Silk Road. I did the uh, inaugural, inaugural race and like one guy didn't bring gloves. Lots of people wore like total like Lycra suits. Like I'm just like, yeah, this is this is Kyrgyzstan, like, you're gonna hit, get hit with snow, and there was, like, um, a freak storm on the first pass, and some people had to scratch because they were gonna get, they got hypothermia, and it's just, like, I was driven to that race, not simply because of, like, brute force and strength as a cyclist, it's all a head game, and it's, like, you know, when, uh, when I was in Tibet, it was, like, three weeks, 
you know, on the lamb and, you know, you can't, you can't mess up. Like you have to keep your wits about you. You have to stay calm. You can't cry. You can't get overwhelmed with anything like that. You just have to stay focused and be like, okay, I have to get to this next point. So that really like caught my attention was like, this is like a personal head game and I really want to play it. So uh, one of the guys that started the race um, had a bike company in Shanghai and he actually let me ride his bike at one of the checkpoints and I hadn't been on a bike in Asia like that in a while and all these feelings came back and I was like, and I didn't have four panniers strapped to it or anything. It was just like a naked, rigid gravel bike. I was like, oh my God. Like all those old feelings came back to the surface and this was in 2018. And so it was a very slow build. I reached out to Jeff Leo in Shanghai and we had a titanium frame, custom frame built for me. Um, And then I brought back the frame when COVID hit and slowly built the bike. And, uh, you know, I'd been kind of playing with the idea, but COVID had changed everything. And then, you know, Jeff had met, we were messaging back and forth because when I was putting the bike together, He's like, so you're going to race this year? And I'm like, well, sure, why not? So I put in the application and I went ahead and went back to Kyrgyzstan. Uh, let's see, that would have been 2022. So four years after the initial like exposure to racing. And yeah, I guess I've, I've been, and I did my first ultra endurance race in Bend, Oregon, about 10 months before the Silk Road Mountain Race, just as like a trial error. And I tested things like, riding my bike for 48 hours and like sleep deprivation and all that kind of stuff. So to kind of see where my head would go and yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess like the last two years I've been really interested in ultra endurance racing uh, for many things. And like older people, what I've noticed usually they may not win, but they finish. And it's like, I think, but cause I still have long distance touring brain. Like I get on a bike and I find my cadence. I'm like, oh, this is fine. I can cycle like this for two months straight. But, you know, I don't have the racer brain, but I know that I can get from point A to the point B and finish and whatever. So that's it. So how, how does how does the race work? Is it, uh, is it self-supported? Is, are there overnight stops? Do you have to pack your own tents or how does it all work? Yeah, it's self-supported and you're not supposed to uh, have any help from any outside uh, sources. There's three checkpoints that you need to reach to on time to continue to the next checkpoint. Uh, yeah, you need you have to figure out if you're gonna carry a bivy or a tent or if you're gonna carry food or fuel. You have to figure all that out yourself. And what's the total distance? Is it a, a time race or a distance race or is, it, is there a finishing it's line? How does it how does it work? Distance race. <laughs> Well, at that point, we had a little technical problem. We lost our internet connection. So Eleanor and I agreed that we would continue the interview the next day. So everything you hear from this point on is actually happening in the future. Hello again, Eleanor. Now, before the technology tripped us up and uh, interrupted us yesterday. We were talking about the Silk Road mountain race, this epic uh, bike race through the mountains of Kyrgyzstan. And you promised me that you were going to look up the numbers for me. So what can you tell me? How many miles are we talking? Can I give you kilometers? 
You can give me kilometers. That's also okay. <laughs> 1,895 kilometers with 34,500 meters of climbing. And it's done. 34,000. So that's, that's 34 yeah. kilometers straight up. 34,500 meters of yeah. climbing. Uh -huh. And it needs to be done within two weeks. Within two weeks. And this is almost all off-road, right? There was a oh. little bit of tarmac. There's yeah. um, the never-ending washboard of hell where at one, I was riding in the rain and I would like try to find the line and the gravel and then like it would like wash me out. And then that was the point where I stopped and was screaming very foul language at the race director, Nelson, in the air. And I don't know if he heard it all the way in Bishkek, but so um, there's uh, there were two passes that were... Um, that had to be hike a bike that were fresh avalanches and the last avalanche crossing I did at night. And I like, I had pushed the bike over the pass and down the av going down a fresh avalanche is really tricky at night. <laughs> so, um, and I was also the last person in the race at that point. So I knew that if there was like, if anything happened to me, there would be no cyclists coming behind me to, you know, help me. And there were some water crossings and stuff. So yeah, it's a, uh, a lot of hiking, a lot of pushing, a lot of screaming, a lot of whatever you find yourself into. Mm. Now, for our listeners who perhaps haven't subjected themselves to cycling in terrain like this before, can you explain to us what you mean by uh, washboarded roads? Uh, it's like what con convex, concave, up, down, up, down. It's like... Um, like corduroy pants that you would have to like ride your but bike you're, across. you're cycling across the grain of the corduroy right so yeah you're, you're so you bumming up it, and down yeah there's a, mm. that's why you have front suspension bikes to like take that like up and down up and down but i actually had a rigid a full rigid bike so i definitely felt it in my forearms and like yeah your whole body your whole body like vibrates so yeah hard work now, actually, Eleanor, there's going back to our conversation yesterday before we were we were cut off. There's something that you said that I've been reflecting, maybe ruminating on overnight. And actually, I'd like to use our our second chance to talk today to dive in deeper on this. So I don't know. Maybe you remember I asked you what was your favorite country for cycling, and I'm going to play back to you what what you said um here we go which is your favorite country for cycling tibet oh should i not say it that way i mean western china <laughs> okay so that was that was my, my first question about your favorite country for cycling and then i asked you another question about your favorite country for eating favorite country for eating Ooh, East Turkestan. I mean, Xinjiang. <laughs> okay, and I thought just what you and obviously you were you were partly joking there, but maybe partly not as well. Um, and I w want to use that maybe to set the scene for our listeners, some of whom might not know so much about that part of the world. Um, we're talking about two places really aren't we tibet and xinjiang and you also referred to both of those places by some different names 
as I say, you know, maybe half joking, maybe kind of not half joking, but let's call them Tibet and Xinjiang for now. And because these two places have come to be, I think, the the focus of your life's work for the last dozen years or more. Uh, what I want to do in a minute is to explore with you how that happened, how that came to be and what it means for you today. But first, just to set the scene for, for listeners who might not be so familiar with, with these parts of the world, and in particular, why it matters what we call these places. Uh, so, so let's try and condense a thousand years of history and culture and politics and propaganda uh, into just a couple of minutes. Interrupt me at any point if you think I'm getting it wrong or, or missing something out. But let's start with Tibet. It's probably better known uh, in the West, isn't it? Ruled, of course, for centuries by Dalai Lamas as an independent country, though I guess certain times to different degrees within China's sphere of influence. And then 1950, the PLA, that's the, the People's Liberation Army, comes along. That's Mao's, Mao Zedong's Chinese Communist Army. They march on Lhasa and basically say, hi, Tibet, you're part of China now. We're in charge. Get used to it. So the Dalai Lama flees to India. And then it's been a story of political, religious, cultural repression pretty much ever since, uh, including actually chopping Tibet up geographically into pieces. That's the largest piece now, ironically, called the Tibetan Autonomous Region, so-called. And then the rest of the historically Tibetan territories divided up into the surrounding Chinese provinces of Yunnan and Sichuan and Qinghai and so on. Uh, obviously, it's a part of the world that you know really well. But I think it's important that our listeners understand the context, how in, in modern China, ruled by the Chinese Communist Party, this whole subject of Tibet is super sensitive, isn't it? I mean, any suggestion that Tibet is or should be or indeed ever has been an independent nation is taboo. Well, it's more than taboo, isn't it? It's illegal. It's called splitism. You go to jail for it. It's not just Tibetan independence that's repressed, but it's also wider Tibetan culture, of course, as well. So you know, that's that's Tibet. Uh, and then, then there's Xinjiang, this huge region in the far west of China. You call it East Turkestan, and there's a whole history there, which perhaps you'll explain for us uh, a little bit later on. So this is for people trying to place it on a map. It's the, the far west, western end of China, bordering Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan and so on. Historically, it's a predominantly Muslim area, a home to many Muslim people, including the, the Uyghurs, which I think is something that you'll be talking about. Another region with a complicated history, but again, one that's been brought firmly under Chinese control by well, initially by Mao's communist army. Again, we're talking back the late 1940s, early 1950s. And again, similar to Tibet, um, culture, political aspirations, and including in some cases a desire for political independence of the original inhabitants so that the Uyghur people above all, this is all strongly repressed, including, you know, in recent years, is it a million people, maybe more, have been forcibly sent to these so-called re-education camps in, a, in an effort to erase or to wipe out their, their culture, a sense of history, and, and of course any pro-independent settlement. Uh, so again, like Tibet, a hugely 
politically sensitive region for China. Any pro-independence talk lands you swiftly in prison. And again, as in Tibet, for, and thinking now for, for foreigners, any nosing around, talking to people, taking too close an interest in anything other than the, like, the officially tourist-sanctioned uh, photo spots is likely to put you on the radar of the Chinese police and other authorities. So that, that's the background to these two areas, which you've decided, or maybe you didn't decide, maybe you found yourself uh, becoming immersed in over the last 15 years or so. So, uh, Eleanor, over to you, really. Can you tell us the story from your side? Where did all this begin? I think it began with a bicycle around 2009. Uh, yeah. But how did it happen for you? Uh, well, I guess... I guess the whole bicycle tour, I remember being in Shanghai and I went to a Uyghur restaurant and I saw these people and I was listening to the different music and seeing um, and having the food. It was actually, you probably know that it was on Jing'an Lu and Jululu. You probably remember that like intersection. There was a, a Uyghur restaurant there and I was like, who are these people? This is fascinating. And so um, it was starting to be explained to me and I started doing research and then I was thinking about the bike tour and I was like, I just want to go west. I just want to go west. I just want to go west. I want to get to. I want to get to Kashgar. And like, um, at that point in my life, like photographically and career wise, I didn't really know what I wanted. Like, I didn't. I didn't have my fight. I didn't have the reason to put my pants on in the morning, as I always say. Like, I just. I was kind of lost. I was. A, I was a bit depressed. I wasn't finding myself. So I took it the very long way to get out west. And in between getting to Kashgar from Shanghai, I ended up in Tibet. And I started, I was in the Sichuan area, and then, which is Kham, Tibet. So there's three kingdoms. There's Kham, Amdo, and Utsang. And Utsang would be what people commonly think of as Tibet. But if you look through books, people usually, there's three ways of referring to Tibet. There's the... Um, Chinese geographical way. There is the um, more like political three kingdom way. And then there's the third way, which you actually include like the the areas of Northern India, Bhutan and Nepal, all like the entire like cultural region. So I went through Kham, which is a uh, Sichuan part of Qinghai, Amdo, which would be Qinghai and part of uh, Gansu. And then um, I had met an, a fellow American out there and he twisted my arm enough to be like, hey, let's let's sneak over the border. So so when um, you say border here, what, what, which border are we talking about? We're talking about the border from Amdo into Utsang, which Utsang would be considered what people consider Tibet and you need a permit there. So and this is from a from a Chinese perspective, this is the Tibetan autonomous region as it is yes. today. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that's very... more tightly controlled than the other peripheral regions of. Oh of yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So I'd been cycling with this American for I think four or five weeks. You remember those whole stories, and uh, we get across the border. It's high stress, and I'm just like, dude, you can't be treating me this way and talking to me this any talking to me this way anymore because I was feeling like I was pulling my weight. I was doing the translating. I was like peeking around looking for police checkpoints i arranged like to hitch um our bikes on top of coal trucks to sneak us across the border and like he was just being snarky and nasty and so like two days in i was looked at him i was like look 
you just go your own way. I'm going to go my own way. And I hadn't prepared for this. So I didn't have a working stove. I didn't have any detailed maps of Tibet, but I was like, whatever, I'll figure it out. Who cares? So for like almost three weeks, I rode along one of the most like difficult routes in the world. I saw two buses a day. I didn't have any food. I had to beg for water a couple of times. Um, I witnessed this weird shamanic, like weird Buddhist ceremony and I finally got arrested. And um, (laughs) so they took me back to the border and um, up until that point, I'd been witnessing things. And I'm one of those types of people that like when I'm traveling, I do research and like try to learn as much as I can about the people and the culture and politics. And I didn't realize how much like geopolitics really interested me. So this whole Tibet stuff started happening. And then after the arrest, I went back out to um, what most people know as Xinjiang. And I started cycling through there in the wintertime. And um, I started learning about all of that stuff and witnessing things. And since I had a Chinese work permit, I didn't have a rush to leave China. So I went very, very slow. I took really meandering routes I stayed with people, I made friends, and, you know, through Tibet and Xinjiang, uh, I made a lot of contacts, and so when I got back from cycling through Central Asia, I stayed in the countryside with some Uyghur friends for, like, two months, and that would have been in 2012, and I had picked cotton in the cotton fields with them, I had, like, eaten, you know, I was basically with them in the countryside for almost two months, and so the the bike tour ended in 2012, December 20, oh, maybe November 2012. Um, well, the bike tour ended in September, but then I was in Xinjiang for two months after that. And then I came back to the States for about a year thinking I wasn't going to go back to China. And obviously that didn't work out. So I got really depressed and I was like, and some people were like, well, just come back just come back. We'll, we'll help you get work and everything. So I went back in 2013 and then I returned to Tibet and Xinjiang to see friends with my camera and no bike in 2014. And from 2014 to 2017, I was making repeat visits to Xinjiang to photograph what was going on in Tibet up until 2020 when COVID hit. And I was actually in Tibet when COVID hit and I haven't been back since. Okay, so that's a, a quick gallop through uh, what we're talking. That's 11 or 12 years worth of work, really. Let's talk about the two months you spent in Xinjiang near the beginning of that story. You said you was you were staying with some friends. How did that come about? And to what extent, if, if any, was it politically difficult for you at that stage? Was there any difficulty from the local authorities with you as a as a foreigner being in that part of China or that part of Xinjiang at the time? Yeah, so I had um, I made posts on Facebook, I think, and uh, a lot of that I have a very large like connection of Uyghurs and Tibetans on social media. That's probably the main reason I won't get rid of it. So somebody who I'm still friends with um, saw that I was in Xinjiang and he was like, you should meet my family. And so I met his mom and his uh, young, like infant brother and his father. And uh, I don't want to give away locations. And so um, 
I, I met with them and the father had to go to the police station. And I remember, um, him telling me that it was very difficult for, um, them to register for me to stay there. But actually I remember, I remember the first few stories that had a big impact. So can I rewind a little bit? Sure. So when I got to Kashgar in 2012, this young Uyghur boy came up to me. He could speak beautiful English, beautiful. He couldn't speak any Mandarin. And this would have been like in April or May. And then, you know, I'm pushing my bike full panniers and he comes up to me and um, he was like, he's like, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a guest house? Blah, blah, blah. So he helped me with that. And so we started talking and he's like, would you like to meet tomorrow? And I'm like, sure. Okay. And um, this is still in Kashgar where they wore the, the brown blanket and the cobs with the, the tight weave. You probably remember this, but mm-hmm. that doesn't so exist just anymore. For, for, uh, for our listeners, uh, just uh, remind us where, where Kashgar fits in geographically in, in uh, Xinjiang. It is the far western city of what would be considered greater China, but it's also a very important city on the ancient Silk Road trading route. So if you go to Kashgar, you'll see people, you'll see Uyghurs, you'll see Chinese, you'll see Kazakhs, uh, Uzbeks, uh, people from Pakistan, Afghanistan. When I'm in Kashgar and I like wear my Uyghur getup or Uyghur outfits, uh, a lot of people think I'm from Uzbekistan or Pakistan. I've actually had chi- like Han Chinese shove their camera lenses in my face when I was sitting outside the mosque because they thought I was Uyghur. And then I start shouting at them in Mandarin, telling them I'm an American, and that just blows their mind. But um, so, yeah, sorry, a little bit of a segue there. Um, so I I met up with him the next day, and he's like, my auntie is in the hospital. Can you, can you come over and help translate some things for me? And I'm like, sure. And so we're in like old town Kashgar, which is supposed to be all Uyghur. And I go into the hospital or like a waiting room and there's all these Uyghur women and they have the brown weave niqab like over their face and some of them take it off. And a Han Chinese nurse comes into the room and they hand her hand the woman paperwork that's written in mandarin chinese and i just remember just being like what what is this i was like these people can't read this language they're in a hospital in their neighborhoods and you're handing them this like this so this was in 2012 and i i distinctly remember this being like it just infuriated me so much to like have they had to find an american that was traveling through the streets to translate like help translate this for them. So, so you were translating from Mandarin into English or English. Mandarin into, into Uyghur? Mandarin yeah. into English. So he, the son, could translate to his auntie in Uyghur. And I just remember being so furious that this was going on there. I was like, oh, so everything that they're saying is true. And I remember walking down the streets and this Uyghur man comes up to me. This is in 2012. And he's like, where are you from? And I'm like, I'm from America. He's like, and his eyes were shifting everywhere. And he's like, do, do you know what, like, I remember him speaking English to me being like, oh, it, like, he, I can't remember the exact conversation, but he was trying to talk to me about something. And then he like looked to the side, he's like, I have to go. And then he ran off. And so this was in 2012. And so like these little things were happening and I was noticing, I was researching, I was hearing people were telling me. So, you know, it's just, it just like, so I started doing therapy last year and we discovered <laughs> why um, I have such a hard time with like 
injustices to people and it just it really it really upsets me when I see people being treated unfairly so that kind of just it just captivated me being like okay this this is so wrong and so um yeah so in 2012 I lived with this young man's family out in the countryside too and I had seen everything that was happening there but then again um in 20 yeah 2012 like living in the countryside um it's just their lives were a lot harder the Chinese were taking over I remember picking cotton um after the machines come through and like they would invite locals to come in and pick up the cotton from the ground and like from the base of the plant and I had scratches like all up my arms um and I would sit with the Uyghurs during the lunch break but the Chinese were having free lunch because they brought in a bunch of soups and and steamed buns and everything, but they all had meat in it. So the Uyghurs didn't get the free lunch. And I just remember thinking, well, that's kind of unfair too. Like the Uyghurs are, are working here, but you know, they don't, they have to spend their own money and time to prepare their food while, you know, the Han Chinese over there just, you know, get to, to eat free and look at them laughing like, Oh, it's such a great time for them. So that just started the, the evolution of everything. So when you set off on your bicycle, you weren't on a political mission to start with. Mm -mm. You were on a personal mission to have an adventure of some sort. And then you stumbled into these conversations and and met people just by chance in Old Town Kashgar. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's come to change the direction of your life over the last 10 years or more. Is, Is that right? Yeah. And you know, it's like, I'll try not to cry when I talk about this stuff. <laughs> um, cause I do, um, I get, I mean, these like little adventures I go on, like when I was racing in the Silk Road, I always think about the women I've met over the last decade, you know, the ones that are really brave, the ones that are really fighting against something. And it's like, when people tell me, Oh, you're so brave. What? I'm brave because I was privileged enough to go to another country and ride my bike. Like, come on, really? Like, do you really know what's going on in other parts of the world? Like, let me tell you about brave women. Like, let me tell you about women who are resilient and, you know, have to go up against a regime just to like, you know, try to send their kids to school or like preserve their language and culture. I'm not brave. I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm just privileged you know, and I've chosen to do this. So every time I ever think about giving up or not doing something, like all these little girls that I've met during my bike tour that would tell me, oh, I wish I could do something like that. I wish I could do this. And I wish I could do that. I always think about these little conversations I've had with people or their faces and their names and these women. I'm like, that's what bravery is. And, you know, when when Tibetans are Uyghurs, like I always you know, I try to meet with as many as I can when I'm traveling for work. And, um, you know, sometimes I'm asked like, oh, would you write this or do this? I'm like, yeah, of course. Like I'm indebted to you all. Like, I feel like I'm absolutely indebted to Uyghur and Tibetan women, women, because I feel, I know that they're the ones that taught me like what true womanhood is. And I know that might sound silly or, you know, how does that happen? But I think I was like 30 when I started my bike tour and just everything I've seen and heard and witnessed, like, like 
it's just it's unbelievable so it's like that whole that whole oh you're so brave (laughs) no i'm not (laughs) like let me show you these pictures let me tell you about these women let me show you what they're up against i mean just not even politically but culturally like it's it's just you know so it's my fight. It's my lifelong fight. And I don't know how it's going to be used, but you know, whether or not it's telling, you know, first world people, Hey, you know, maybe you should put these things in perspective. Uh, I'm not here to make you feel guilty for like feeling bad, but think about it. Like these people don't have clean water, you know, to drink. And here we are in the U S like, Oh, if I'm thirsty, I just run the spigot, you know, where like in other countries, it's like, oh, you need to boil it. You need to make sure you like get it from a clean place. You need to haul it for like, you know, an hour or whatever. So I don't know, you know, it just brings me back to my hot cup of coffee, a hot shower and a, you know, clean, warm socks. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So that, that was the, that was that chance conversation that started your association with Uyghurs mm-hmm. um what about on the Tibetan side because I think that's been the you know there's obviously two adjacent regions in China but quite different historically and, and culturally and I think you've had quite a lot of association with and, and both difficult politically as well difficult areas to operate in as a as an outsider or as a, as an insider or an outsider, I suppose. So how did your, how did your connection with Tibet really start other than that difficult journey you had with one of your fellow countrymen, um, trying to cycle towards, was it uh, cycling towards Lhasa? I don't know which direction you were going. Yeah. He actually crossed into, uh, Nepal and I Uh was just gonna, I was just gonna head West and like cut up into what's known as Xinjiang. So, but it didn't, didn't work out that way. Mm-hmm. Um, which is everything's fine. I probably would have died. Um, so Tibet. Oh, this is this is this is a deep one. Well, I'm a mountain person, so I love mountains and um, the hospitality of Tibetans. Like you can, you, if you went into every nomad tent for a cup of tea, you wouldn't move. Like. You know, it's like everybody's running out to the side of the road to like drag you into their tent for uh, tea. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's a couple moments that really stand out. I just really loved like the mountain life and culture, and the people were so hospitable. And um, I like now that I've studied bit a bit of Buddhism, like that thought is more fitting for me, maybe because it's really fatalistic. Um, but I remember um, when I was in Tibet, like run, keeping away from the police, Tibet, um, Utsang, where I wasn't supposed to be. Um, I was underfed. Um, I was, I was. I was hallucinating. Uh, I wasn't sleeping. Like I was getting sick. And I remember I can still see the mountain range that I was sitting on. And um, I had gone up a little area to look for water. And I remember sitting there and I just had this like moment of realization that my life existence is not for me. It's for other people. Because I remember sitting there being like, I could just die here and be so happy. Like, this would just be fine. I'd be okay with it. This is, this is the greatest feeling ever. I could just never return. 
And I just remember looking out into this mountain range thinking, but my life isn't for me. It's for other people. Like, you know, we're here to serve one another and help one another. And, you know, the whole, the whole idea of life is suffering. Well, it's, I believe that's true. And, you know, that's probably why I have the sense of humor I have is because, you know, we're here to help one another and try to, you know, let go of a lot of that awful, those awful things that we feel about other people in the world and especially about ourselves. And I just remember thinking like, well, I have to get up. Like my bike saddles, the rails had snapped at that point. And like, I'm like wearing my shoes down from like pushing the bike. And I'm like, well, I guess I just need to keep going because, you know, people count on me and it's my responsibility to, um, you know, help other people. And so that was a really big moment in my life. And so one reason I started going out to Tibet was that the whole idea of rebirth, I always think like when I go out to Tibet, I'm revisiting the Eleanor that I left behind in 2011. Like that, those three weeks over uh, Utsong, like were so life-changing for me. And I feel like when I left, I left like an older version of me behind. Like I always think of like the pre-Tibet and post-Tibet Eleanor where like everything just, you know, it was just, it was just all making sense. And even though I was probably hallucinating because of lack of sleep and, and food. I actually had a friend who was like, you uh, people look for vision quests. It found you <laughs> like maybe, but um, you know, some things I witnessed out there, I kept to myself for years. Cause I thought, Oh, you're just crazy. Like that didn't really happen. Um, so yeah. So I started going back in 2014 to like, um, kind of revisit that part of me. And I have to admit, I probably pushed myself a little bit more every trip to try to get that, that lightning bolt of epiphanies. And maybe I've had a few since then, but you know, it, it never really returned, but I was really captivated by the culture. And so I was starting to document daily life because I also have a really big problem with like the commodification of Tibet like oh it's a fairyland and all the monks are happy and they run around and everybody's dancing and listening to music and eating sampa but Tibet is hard it is so hard um the family I've been staying with for like six or seven years I would help them um during the grain harvest and I remember Iga one of the sons came home and he told me how somebody had died um like immediately when a tractor had uh, flipped over and my dear friend, Jamyang Samo, who I've been documenting for years, I got a phone call that she was in the hospital in Chengdu and she had been in a tractor accident with her sister-in-law and I was able to get to Chengdu and her head had basically been scalped from a tractor accident. I mean, that's just one of the things not to mention like, um, high infant death rate, um, just men fighting, and, you know, and it's like, I've talked to people about a lot of the like personal conflicts between, uh, Tibetan men. And it's just like, of course they're angry. Like, what do they have? The Han Chinese are coming in and taking their jobs and, you know, their livelihood and the way that they've been accustomed to like, yeah, of course they're angry. And so like the family I stay with was John, Jamyang Samo and Iga, um, one of the sons ended up in prison while I was visiting. So Gayla, who's my Tibetan mother, she's in her 70s. She just starts sobbing in front of me because her son's in prison because he stabbed a man. And like, 
yeah so there's i mean this is just one household right and so you know and i've i've seen domestic abuse and i don't want to like i don't want to like paint this awful picture but there's a rise of suicide there's a rise of mental illness and this western world paints this picture of like oh let's free tibet it's so beautiful and the dalai lama it it is a beautiful place but there's so much more there and I'm not there to like expose all the badness. I'm just there to show like the reality, like these people are just up against so much. And I'm convinced that there's so much generational trauma and mental, mental un, Yeah. It's just, I mean, losing your kids or walking your child to a border and never seeing them again. Like I can't imagine like what kind of effect this has on people. So it's, it's messy. So you spent, I don't know, periods of time in both these regions, in, in in Tibet and in Xinjiang. And then between times, you've been back home, wherever home was during that period. And you've been working on projects inspired by or, or, or based on the experiences you've had in those two regions, particularly. Can you can you tell us more about specifically what what you've been doing and how you've been using those experiences to amplify the voices of the people who you've who you've lived with well i'm actually kind of happy covid happened because when i was in china i was usually based in shanghai and i really tried to keep a low profile when i was Mm. working on stuff so i don't know if i really would have pushed my imagery as much as i have over the last few years um so the tibetan stuff is more like daily life i did start like nosing around in domestic abuse right before i left And that was really hard to get into um, just because a lot of people didn't want to talk about it. And then some people did want to talk about it. Um, Let's see if I can keep on track with your question. So because of COVID, I've been back in the States and I've been going through my work and I started studying Tibetan because I'm not giving it up. And I'd been wanting to study Tibetan for a while. So COVID gave me that opportunity to, well, it made me sit still for a while. And uh, if you haven't caught on, I don't like to sit still. So, um, also my Uyghur work, uh, I'm, I'm a bit connected in the academic world. So a lot of my photographs, a lot of academics who write books will request photos and I'm more than happy to give them to them. A lot of times, well, all the time they're like, we don't have a budget. And I'm like, that's fine. Take what you want. Just don't connect my name to it. That's all I ask anymore. So most photographers, well, maybe not most, but I think a lot of photographers want to have some royalties from photo usage. But when it comes to the Tibetan and Uyghur issues, the reason I do it is to get it out, not to make a buck or a euro or whatever. So, um, yeah, so I kind of do a lot of things behind the scenes that maybe people don't know. So in the photographic stuff, the Uyghur work is what has been on hold since 2017, just because the last time I visited, it was just, it was getting too risky for them. And I was getting searched constantly and it just was getting really, really bad. Um, And then, so that has been kind of on hold. And since then, I actually am going to a photo workshop tomorrow. And then I have another photo, photo journalism workshop. Uh, after that and I'm hoping to like try to figure out how to get funding and um, all that stuff to continue work with Uyghurs but I'd really like to work with Uyghurs in Istanbul 
because um, right now they're trying to pass something to have 10,000 Uyghurs from Istanbul come into Canada. And I would love to document um, this life path from Istanbul to Canada and how the whole process happens and how these people uh, hold on to their culture and religion or work with Uyghur communities here in the U.S. and the diaspora. Um, the thing with Tibet, um, I kind of look at the whole, like it's it's kind of different how I do things. The Tibetan stuff I look at more as like cultural uh, visual conservation because it used to be that the theory was, like for example, um, the theory was that Tibetan language would be dead in 100 years. Now it's an estimate of 50 years because of like, this like the the big thing in the news right now is the the government can't, uh schools that are forcing tibetan children to speak mandarin so that's one thing it's like the language is disappearing and you know we we know what happened in what's known as xinjiang uh the mosques being leveled and bulldozed and you know it's gonna happen it is happening in tibet as well so i just feel like um for me what i've witnessed and how i've tried to pursue the Tibetan stuff is that it's so fragile. Well, both are very precarious, but it's almost just like preserving something for the future. And, you know, it's not here to make money or get published. It's here for maybe a hundred years from now, 200 years from now, like what was going on then? What was life like? Um, I know a lot of Tibetans here in North America that you know, they, they start losing things, you know, maybe their children aren't learning the language or don't know how their grandparents lived. So, you know, when I share these photos, I, I hear comments like, oh, that reminds me of, you know, home or that's like this or that. So I just, I really just like being able to capture these moments that, you know, give these people a feeling that, you know, I don't know. I'm, so, you know, it's always a work in progress. You have all these stories. You have these connections with people. You have photographs, uh, maybe film as well that, that you've you've created, and and you have, I guess, sitting somewhere on a on a hard drive somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's the future for all that stuff? Is how do you do you have a vision for how how that can be shared and and stored and saved for longer term and made yeah. available to you know, whoever needs to see it. I I would like to do like books. Um, you know, it just comes to trying to find the balance between paying your bills and mm. buying airfare to like do work and then sitting down and doing a book. Um, I do have a publisher talking to me. He was actually introduced to me by Emily Chapel, the cyclist. And he's been talking to me about a written book and I kind of have an idea where to go with that. But I need to, I feel like I need to put down some more groundwork before people, I don't know, it's weird. Like, people don't know my work, but then when they meet me or see my work, they're like, oh, this is really important. And so, um, and it's, it's, it's sad because when I was pushing the Uyghur photography 10 years ago, nobody was really interested and then, you know, old Trump came into office and used the whole situation as a, as some of his anti-China rhetoric, which, you know, he doesn't care. Um, he, 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 he didn't. And he just used it for his anti-China stuff. And, you know, it starts coming to the surface of what's going on. And, you know, it's like now when I say, now it's more likely that when I mention Uyghurs or, or Xinjiang 
or the persecuted Muslim minority of Northwestern China, people actually know what I'm talking about. Since I'm not a trained photojournalist, I have a bachelor's of fine arts, and this, this road has been a very lonely and isolating one because... I'm like a photographer, but I'm also like a human rights activist. And some people don't want to hire a photographer that's an activist because it can be seen as biased. But this is what you get. Like, I can't, I can't not do this because just the crap that I've seen and even the stuff that was done to me. Or I remember being on a bus in 2012, finishing my bike tour, and I had my, like, headscarf on, and the Han Chinese on the bus were pointing at me, whispering, talking about that dirty Uyghur girl. And I'm like, I'm not even Uyghur! So, like, I'm facing racism for something I'm not even. So, like, I can't forget those moments, you know? And it's just like, how can, how can you not be an activist but luckily um uh, like the last year or so i found this website called social documentary network and it's actually for photojournalism photojournalists that are very active in human rights and looking to change and have an impact with these things so i'm finding i'm finding the right people and and the right groups that want to help me and support me and that's what's that's what's important because I, and while I was in China, I was kind of quiet about everything. Like I used to hide my hard drives. I would like put pennies on top of my doors, um, to see if anybody came in while I was gone. Um, I got really good at like hiding things and hiding myself and not being seen, which is, you know, funny that I'm almost six foot and a white American. And I'm like, creeping in the shadows of China with a camera, you know, but I was able to get it to work. And, you know, like I, I did a self-published book of a, of a Tibetan ceremony and I've only been able to find two ceremonies of this in the entire like Tibetan region. I actually had to like work with some anthropologists to help me find out what was going on. And um, people look at the photos and they're like, wow, it looks like you just like set a camera up and like, nobody's looking at you and nobody's interacting with the camera. And I'm just like, yeah, I was like twice as tall as all these people, but it was my friends that got me there. So like, I'm not the best photojournalist. I'm not the best at anything, except I'm really good at blending in and like not being seen. Like my, my magic power is like with people and just disappearing and having a very small footprint. And you know, it's like, that's my magic. That's my magic power is like going invisible. You describe yourself as an activist and actually you're an activist in two of the most, in some ways, difficult parts of the world to, to be an activist because of the political sensitivities and police activities in those, in those two parts of the world, uh, Tibet and Xinjiang. So how, how, does, how does that work for you, both when you're there on the ground and also when you're when you're back in in Dayton, Ohio, uh, to what extent do you still have to watch your back or watch your mouth? You know, every, everything you've you've shared with me in the last uh, forty five minutes or so potentially is is going to go out there on the internet, and there are people who might be taking an interest in who this person Eleanor Moseman is, especially if you were to decide to go back to China one day. How does that work for you? Um, well, in China, it was a gradual growth for me. So I kind of learned the game of, and like also knowing how they questioned me. 
So, like, towards the end, when I saw an officer look at me and, like, walk towards me, I knew exactly what questions he was going to ask. So, I would, like, spitfire the answers in Mandarin before he even could ask the questions. And then he would just be like, oh, oh, okay. And so, like, I just knew, like, the dog and pony show. Like, I just knew it. And, you know, if a police officer was coming up to me, I would, like, pop the battery out of my camera. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't have any power in my phone. I mean, my camera. I would try to get away with not speaking Mandarin, only speaking English. But um, I was an English teacher on vacation. I just was able to play the game with them. And it probably wasn't good because sometimes I would, like, push myself a little bit more and just see, like, oh, I wonder what I can get away with now. Xinjiang was a little bit different because it was, like... The guns and tanks were a little bit more intimidating. So I would just kind of throw, like, I remember one of the last times I was pulled out of a car and my entire backpack, I had to go through my backpack in the middle of the road. And I'm like throwing my underwear in there and I'm just like throwing it with attitude, like whatever. And like, until they get frustrated, right? When COVID hit, I was actually in Tibet and I'm trying to not get sent back. So I'm actually saving my hotel receipts and I remember the Chinese people in my uh, shared vehicle, they were like so impressed because I'm like handing them my receipts, explaining, oh, I've been in Tibet this long, blah, blah, blah. Please don't send me back. Please don't send me back. And so like I was actually able to keep going through borders like further into Tibet while COVID was going on. But eventually that just all ended. Um, I ended up doing a story for the LA Times about COVID in Tibet. And that's when I shut down my Twitter uh, I blocked my website from being accessible in China. I got a ton of strange emails asking for information. And then my business partner in Shanghai was pulled into questioning. <laughs> um, lots of questions about me. Lots of questions. And she's Romanian, so she was she was used to that. She she's a tough girl. She was <laughs> she wasn't scared. Um, so yeah, they know who I am. <laughs> so, um, at that point I was like, well, what do I have to lose? You know, they know who I am. I might as well start being loud about it. But the crazy thing is, is like when I meet Chinese people here, like Han Chinese, I'm always like, did somebody send you? Because like my paranoia in China, like I, re I remember coming back to the States to visit and sleeping so well. And I remember thinking, oh yeah, I don't have the same paranoia I have in China. Like, you know, like when I was in the subway station, like I, like I can spot the black eyes, like the cameras and the microphones, like in the U S really well too. And my friends are like, how do you even spot those? I'm like, they're so easy. Like it's just part of like my training. It's like to like look for the black eye, like watching me. And so, um, yeah, I just, you know, I was just like on alert constantly. It's like sleeping with one eye open all the time. Just because, you know, I didn't, I didn't want them to like plant drugs on me and put me in prison or whatever. But I mean, I would like to go back, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of fortunate that maybe I won't because now I'm just like throwing it all to the wind and being like, well, okay, well now I can be loud. Now I can work with activism groups I can go to Dharamsala and like you know be loud about what I've seen and going on and if I'm never let back in it's really unfortunate because I never got to say goodbye to my friends but maybe someday but probably not this year or next year so but mm. with the economy failing who knows 
Yeah. Um, for for the benefit of our listeners, you're heading uh, to Dharamsala uh, in the next month or two. Uh, can you explain the connection between Dharamsala and uh, the Tibetan world, which you've been interested in? It is the home of the Dalai Lama and like what might people might call, consider um, little Tibet. It's the like large Tibetan and exile community. Um, in India. Yes, right? in India, northern yeah. India. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Um, so I've never been there. I've never been to India because like I was just like, oh, India is so big. I'll save it for another lifetime. But um, my Tibetan teacher, who's from Omdo, he's a... a from Qinghai area. He was the editor for the Tibet Times newspaper, and I told him I wanted to volunteer doing stuff, so I've been doing English editing for their publication, and I've become very good friends with the editor, who she and I are very similar, and um, we've been talking about doing stories together, and especially, and I really want to do some stories on uh, women's health and reproductive issues, because I've seen and heard a lot of awful things about that as well. And um, my Tibetan professor's like, I want you to live in a Tibetan nunnery. When Do that for three months, and then you'll come back completely fluent. So I'm hoping to maybe spend volunteer teaching English in a Tibetan nunnery while I work on my own Tibetan language. I have some ideas um, for photo stories, and I'm hoping to like start some photo stories and come back to the US and maybe try to find some funding or grant money to continue the work. And then I'm moving to the Pacific Northwest. I'm uh -huh. done with the flatlands of Ohio. It's been almost three and a half years. Co and that's the thing, COVID made the, these choices for me. And I wanted to make sure that I didn't find myself in another situation where I didn't get to make the choice. So I'm making sure everything is like right. And so I'm leaving Ohio. I was born here, I was never raised here. Um, so I'm going back to the mountains and uh, also, the Pacific Northwest and Vancouver has an extremely large, like, Uyghur and Tibetan population. So in my, like, dream head, I'm thinking, well, I can work in, you know, Dharamsala and then hopefully find a way to bring that work back to the Pacific Northwest and maybe get involved in groups there. So I'm just trying to, like, connect all this stuff to, to, to do more work. Um, and then I hope to race Silk Road Mountain Race in 2024. I'd actually debated on wearing a jersey or a shirt last year that said free Uyghur, free Tibet. I might do it this year. Just, you know, it's like that whole thing with social media, it bothers me with these people with massive followings and they, they aren't using it to like raise awareness for important issues, whether it's like environmental or human rights. And it's just like, you know, you might find the saying every now and again that says Google Uyghur because most people don't know it. And then if you Google Uyghur, all this stuff comes up and people are like, oh, my God, I had no idea. So, um, yeah, and I've just been trying to like and maybe a book. I've been playing around with an idea and I kind of have an idea of where I, how I want to go about this. And um, yeah. Yeah, that's. I would like to get out of photographing interiors and hotels as my commercial work and do more um, stuff that is fulfilling, emotionally and mentally, not financially. Mm -hmm. Wow. If our listeners, and it's hard to imagine that they wouldn't, given everything that you've told us, if they want to find out more about your work... Uh, or what you're doing, what you've done in the past, 
what your plan is to do in the future. Um, you said you came off social media, but is there any way that they can keep track of you? Uh, probably Instagram. And I do respond to every single message. So uh, my Instagram is really easy. Eleanor period Moseman. Eleanor Moseman. I think I think that's that's mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's the most active. I haven't been posting a lot on it because so I started posting my my Kyrgyzstan Silk Road race and I realized it was hyper focused on me and so I backed off and I was like how do I do this how do I do this so it it goes with my with what I want to say so it's on hold right now but what I'm what I'm planning on doing is as I continue this is because a lot of other stuff interrupted it but I want to after every post is to share a story of a woman that I've met. And I think that's the best way for me to retain my way of sharing things is like, I just don't want to be like, Oh, look at me. I'm riding my bike. It's so hard. I'm so brave. It's like, this is what happened. Oh, by the way, you should meet this person and hear her story because she's had such an impact on my life. And she's one of the reasons that keeps me going and being crazy in the mountains with a bicycle. So I've been really sitting on how to proceed with social media. So it has an impact in the direction I would want to, but also shows an element of myself, which seems like people really want. So I'm like playing with all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, I'll make sure a link to your Instagram goes out with this podcast. Um, you you also have a website, and I don't know whether you keep it up to date these days, but I, I'd like to add a link to that as well, because there's some, not just photography, but some amazing writing of yours on there as well, which if we'd had time, our hour is nearly up, and I'm sure we could do another uh, hour or two or three, um, talking about some of the stories which you've documented on your website uh, but remind us the the url for your your website you want me to do the bike so- stuff the wander cyclist well i i think that's- yeah that's right wandercyclist.com is that the one yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. i'm trying to bring that back to life so what i'd like to do is do long form blogging there and then the instagram be basically be a snippet or summary to like pull people back to mm-hmm. long form writing which seems to be coming it seems to be becoming a lost art so I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yes, in the world of 140 character limits, uh, yeah. the ability to write uh, whole joined-up paragraphs is uh, is something of a rarity. No, but I mean seriously, for for people listening, I I really recommend going to track down uh, wandercyclist.com. I'll add a link on the podcast notes. Uh, there are some extraordinary stories that some of which touch on what we've spoken about in the podcast, and some of which. Don't. They're things that you've not heard about today, but they're stories worth reading. So, Eleanor, well, thanks thanks so much for giving up uh, so much of your time on not one but two days, our, our first attempt yesterday until technology got in the way, uh, and again today. It's been fascinating to hear just a small slice of the stories that I know you've got to tell. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing from you over the coming months, uh, how you get on in Dharamsala and beyond, and uh, I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk again sometime in the future well thanks ed if it hadn't been for all the information that i received over a handful of years i don't know what would have happened so thanks for being that pen pal ah that's a whole nother story and there we go 
What an amazing person, Eleanor Moseman. I hope you've enjoyed listening to her stories as much as I have. Do check out her website at eleanormoseman.com and her Instagram at eleanormoseman. You'll find all the links in the show notes for this episode and I'll post them on the 33rides Twitter and 33rides.com website as well. So big thank you to Eleanor and a big thank you to you too, our listeners. The show would be literally nothing without you. Or so my philosopher friends tell me. Thanks as always to my friends and colleagues at Sticky Technology and to Catherine and all the good people at Brompton Bicycle. I'm Edward Ginocchio and you've been listening to the 33 Rides podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends. And if you've got any questions for Eleanor or for me, you can ask them via the 33 Rides Twitter. We're at 33 Rides. Until the next episode, goodbye. <laughs>